Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of How We Made It in E-Commerce. My name is Jasper Career. I'm your host. Our guest today is Fritz Landman, the CEO of ClassPass, one of the fastest growing online fitness startups. They recently joined the coveted Unicorn Club, having attained a valuation of a billion. Fritz is also an angel investor in several successful startups, including Pinterest, Square, Flexport, Wish, and many others. Welcome, Fritz. Hey, thanks. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Great, great. So maybe you could start by telling us the ClassPass creation story. I gather that you were, the company was founded around 2011 at a time when the, the market for online fitness was already quite saturated, but uh, you were able to get traction fairly quickly and, and succeed. So tell us the, the creation story and then maybe talk about what the core innovation was for ClassPass and how you were able to get traction so quickly. Yeah, well, Pyle, the, the founder and chairman of ClassPass, and I like to joke that ClassPass was an overnight success five years in the making. Uh-huh. She actually, Pyle and her, her co-founders had actually been working on several ideas over a course of a few years, going through a number of pivots. And it wasn't until it became ClassPass, which I think was the third iteration of the company, that it really started to work and take off. And I got involved originally as an angel investor in the business. So I led the seed round and then uh, my partner and I led the series A and I became the chairman because Paul wanted me to spend more of my time on the business. And when we invested the first time, it was still called Classtivity, but Pyle had launched a product, which was a, a 30 day pass that you could use to try a bunch of different studios and gyms. And the idea was you'd find one you loved and then you'd join directly and become a direct member. But what they observed was actually customers wanted to keep buying a pass each month over and over again. And they realized that there's just two different customers. There's one fitness customer who wants to go to one place all the time and be a direct customer of that one location or brand. But then there's another customer who likes to mix it up. And for them, ClassPass was sort of unintentionally providing a great service in that took all of the friction out of discovering and booking workout variety. And for many of us, like myself, I've found that the variety routine is the best routine that gets me to stick with a workout. One day I do boxing, the next day I can lift weights, the next day I do some yoga. And not only is that physiologically better for you to stimulate muscles in different ways, but psychologically, it just keeps it more fun and interesting. You know, I think the primary innovation was taking the friction out of discovering and booking a wide variety of classes, which you habituate to. You go back over and over again to your favorites, but you can change up your routine. The second was the subscription model. So the recurring subscription really does help people work out. We've seen that we get people to work out twice as much because the motivation mechanic of kind of use it or lose it. And then the third is that, you know, our pricing is is really attractive. If you're willing to kind of make some trade-offs with your booking experience, i.e. not necessarily be able to select your bike or not necessarily get the earliest access to the most popular time at, at a Barry's class in exchange for kind of taking those booking experience differences, you get great pricing. So we tend to price between 30 up to 60% off of the direct price. So those three things combined and, and it's really what made ClassPass sale. That is super interesting. You know, how you initially you thought it's just a way to a form of lead gen for these studios, but then you realize that most it's more discoverability that was the the killer feature, if you will. And so today, would you say that's the majority of your business or are there customers who still use it to sign up for one gym and then stick with that? Yeah, we do have some customers who, you know, they try a ClassPass trial. Most of our the people we're bringing into this, into ClassPass and into the boutique fitness industry are new to the space. They were not previously 
going into the industry. So we're, we're really marketing the industry as the best way to work out. And then we say to people through the class pass trial, either you'll find out if you're a variety person, somebody who finds two, three, four, five, six different studios or gyms or wellness providers that you want to kind of keep going back to. Or if you only fall in love with one, you probably aren't going to stay. You probably don't convert in your trial and you probably then just go become a, a free lead for that studio or gym partner of ours. And we don't charge them for those leads. We're happy just to let them take those leads off of our marketing dollars. But what we have noticed is actually some of our customers are willing to pay full price if they don't have to go create like a second wallet outside of ClassPass and a second direct gym relationship. So we're launching, you know, we're going to have the ability for people to buy packs and memberships directly from our partners through us as well. So you can add those to your membership. But certainly those who stay on the ClassPass trial and convert into being a recurring member, they've already discovered during that trial that they're someone who wants three, four, five, six different places to go to over and over. I see. I know you can't talk about revenue numbers specifically, but can you talk about the breakdown of the rev share? Like when you acquire a customer for these gyms and maybe one person tries multiple gyms with the monthly subscription, how do you share revenue with the studios? Yeah, so we provide a small markup. So we have a credit system. So we sell our customers a recurring subscription and in exchange, they get credits, which is a virtual currency. Okay. They get a lot of credits if they're on our top plan. They get less credits if on the mid plan. They're lightweight plans. So it's a really flexible membership and you can kind of go up and down in plan depending on how motivated you are, how much you're working out. And the way the model works is very similar to all the other aggregators that are out there, right? Priceline, Expedia, Airbnb, Uber, DoorDash, in that we mark up the spots that we get. So our partners list inventory at different prices, either using uh, machine learning tech that we give them to set the prices for them at the revenue maximizing rate for each spot. Or if they don't trust machine learning or don't want to do it that way, we can just set up a static price for them. And then we convert that into credits. And then the whole system has an exchange rate where we add a few points of revenue commission on top. So our marketplace commission is dramatically lower uh, than most of the other marketplaces out there. And we find that that revenue alignment actually is best for us because it leads to greater customer retention and sending more money out to our partners keeps them on the platform. That's why so few of our partners have ever left the ClassPass ecosystem. And we try to keep those prices as low as we can. We find that by having a lower take rate that elongates the customer life while they, that they stay in the industry, stay on the platform. And so we kind of make up by having a lower margin in the near term, we actually make you know as much or more money over the customer's lifetime than we would if we try to kind of gouge them at the take rate of some of the other marketplaces out there. Got it. Just to make it more concrete, can you share what the market is? It 15%? Is it 20%? We don't share the specifics, but it's it's under fifteen percent. Cool. You're so you're 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 better than Costco, who that's known for offering great value. <laughs> I think yeah. I read a figure that their, their markup is fifteen percent on on house brand items. So it's a good range to be in. You obviously help these studios acquire customers they wouldn't otherwise get just because of your skill. But some people, namely Vice Media, that likes to write sensational stories, they've compared you to Groupon and they say that you're forcing these studios to offer highly discounted uh, services and they can't make money. What's your take on that? That specific article is incredibly frustrating because of the simple fact that what I just told you is that we make a small revenue commission on the revenue we send to partners, right? So we have every incentive in the world to send as much money to our partners as we can because we make more money. So many of the sentiments shared in that article would have been true about ClassPass's old model before we went to this credit system, but that credit system has been around for three years. So it's weird to sort of omit that our business model means that we are trying to make as much money for the partner as we can. 
some of the studio partners don't love the prices that tend to be revenue maximizing, right? They wish that the prices were higher, mm-hmm. but the industry fill rate is only 35% direct utilization. So there's so much excess capacity in this category. And in terms of the Groupon comparison, I, that one is also kind of annoying because we work really hard to protect our partners' pricing power with their direct audience. What I mean by that is our proposition to partners is that we give them an opaque way to move excess capacity at revenue maximizing prices, right? There's no customer service costs associated with filling capacity with class pass. There's no marketing cost other than the small take rate that we, the small markup on the revenue commission that we get. So it's free marketing, free customer service costs, just pure revenue, which mostly falls straight to the bottom line, unless you're paying your instructor on a per head basis or something. But a lot of our partners don't. Right, the spots going to waste at zero. We send them five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars. That's pure profit. And we just did a case study with Rumble, which is public, where you know we showed almost no cannibalization for one of the most sexy, hottest fitness brands in the world, Rumble Boxing. And we showed that our customers, you can monetize our audience at lower prices, and because of the opacity of our pricing, it's expressed in credits. Prices are hidden behind a subscription paywall, and the prices are constantly moving up and down because most of our Inventory is being dynamically priced by machine learning to find that market clearing price that's going to revenue maximize for the studios. So it's those three things are very different than a Groupon, right? The prices on Groupon are public. And so it's hard, it's hard to sort of charge full price when there's no booking trade-off for the customer, right? So we give partners an opaque way to move that excess capacity. And there's true booking trade-offs when you come through ClassPass. Unlike, say, going through a travel aggregator to book a room at the St. Regis Hotel, with ClassPass, the booking trade-off is sometimes the spot doesn't open up till the night before or the day of a class. Sometimes the price is surge priced all the way up. Sometimes it's cheap. You don't get to choose that treadmill at Barry's Bootcamp or at Rumble Boxing like you do if you book direct. So we believe we've invented the friendliest possible aggregator model out there far friendlier than any of the other aggregators that exist in the internet landscape. And so, you know, to see a, sort of a hit piece written about us like that, that fails to just acknowledge the dichotomy of that our business model relies on revenue maximizing for studios to then write, well, ClassPass is trying to drive prices down in the industry. It's like, why would we do that? We would just be making less money. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. The article glossed over that, you know, ClassPass is used to sell excess inventory and it doesn't affect the full price of the regular customers. In a way, it's a form of price discrimination, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So for the the sophisticated, you know, operators that we work with, they love it because we're actually giving them a form of price discrimination, 100%. We let them monetize an audience that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise because most of our audience is brand new to Studio Fitness. We've tested our audience to see if they're a brand loyalist or a variety seeker in that trial up front. So we've aggregated an audience they wouldn't have access to otherwise, and we give them an opaque way to clear that excess capacity at revenue maximizing prices with no effort, no customer service costs, no marketing costs. It's a pretty good proposition. That's why, despite articles like that Vice one, you know, we have 95, 96% of partners who have ever worked with ClassPass are still on the platform. Amazing. That's a very, very high retention rate. Anyone would kill to have that. Let's shift gears a little. You know, Men's Health wrote a story about you using ClassPass to lose 70 pounds. Remarkable accomplishment when I look at the before and after pictures. And so was that something you felt you needed to do as the CEO of a fitness company, like walk the talk, as they say, and then did it help inspire your troops, you having done that? I don't know if it helped inspire the troops. I think, you know, most of the people who come work here are, are mission-driven folks. We kind of work hard in our recruiting process to make sure people 
are working here, not just because it's a job, but because we actually get to work for a company that helps people live longer if we're successful, right? So the troops were already pretty fired up about the mission of the company and, and the space, and a lot of them already access it. I got involved less as a customer of the industry and more as an investor and just thought, hey, what a cool idea for a marketplace. What a friendly marketplace design versus others. I think this category is really important. I believe in the tailwinds of health and wellness, so let's invest. What really got me to work out was the model of ClassPass actually exposed me to work out that I found more fun and interesting than the traditional ones, right? I'd been a former athlete, so I associated you know, running with punishment for doing something bad in a basketball game or something. And I'd weightlifted, but I'd never done a Bears boot camp class or a rumble boxing class or even yoga. I'd never tried it. So the variety routine that ClassPass unlocked, I tried it because I was like, well, I'm, I'm working for this company. I need to try the product out. That really hooked me. And I would say it was combined with also the fact that I became a father shortly before I stepped in to help operate ClassPass and got a cholesterol readout from my doctor saying, hey, I know you think of yourself as an athlete, but you're pretty overweight and you know actually have high you know, early morbidity risk because of what you're doing to your body with constant travel and business dinners and stuff. So that was the wake up call saying, hey, I have responsibility to my family and you know to sort of get healthier. And uh, I happen to work for this company that has a tremendous product that happens to work really well for me. I, I really call it the world's most effective workout routine because it's not prescriptive. What ClassPass unlocks is each person to find the specific permutation of workout routine that is the best for them, that is the most fun, that's going to keep them the most engaged. That's ultimately what, what derives results in fitness is staying motivated and engaged. Do you also have individual personal trainers on your platform or just studios? That's a great question. Historically, it's been studios, gyms, and then over the last year or so, we've been adding wellness partners. So hotel spas, blowouts, massage, acupuncture, cryo, pools. And recently, we have begun to do some experimentation with personal trainers, especially because that can be done kind of remotely during a pandemic. So we're running some experiments where we are letting individual trainers and individual instructors do video instruction and post-pandemic, post-lockdown. We'll, we'll see how people like to, if that's another sort of modality that people want to book through the ClassPass app. Today, how many customers do you have on both sides of the marketplace, the studios and then the consumers that are buying these classes? Again, as a private company, we don't really disclose our sort of metrics or metrics that would allow people to reverse engineer our P&L, but we have close to a million users of the app, you know, which is a, a big number and you know, needs to be a big number in order to justify the valuation, which was you know, publicly disclosed back in December. And then back to what you mentioned about how you got involved as an angel investor, then you became chairman. How did you then become CEO? That's a great story. So Pyle, the founder, has a track record of convincing people who have invested in the company to come work for. I think she did it three or four times before I was even involved. You know, one of our chief commercial officers, Zach After, was also an angel investor. And she talked him into leaving Google, where he ran strategy for self-driving cars, to come work here. In terms of my involvement, it was a slow process and a very organic one. Started as an angel investor. She then had term sheets from many of the top VC funds in the world for her Series A. But these were people she'd kind of just met during the fundraising process. And Pyle just does things kind of unconventionally. You know, she's sort of figured out how to start the company, went through a bunch of iterations. And so she asked how, if I could take the board seat on behalf of one of the VC funds and my business partner and I have some uh, investors who, who we share deals with. And we said, hey, you know what? Why don't we invest? And we invested with a, a great VC firm called CRV. We co-invested and we put in the, a, a really big check and doubled down on the company so that I could become the chairman of the board at the Series A. So 
I was the chairman of the board or executive chairman. Well, actually, I was chairman. And then she actually asked me to step in and help operate the business and became the executive chairman. And I agreed to do it for a year. And so we were kind of sitting alongside each other. And by the end of that year, I had fallen in love with the business. I had a really clear vision for where I could take things technically and business model-wise in terms of moving us to this credit system. And Pyle, frankly, just enjoyed the chairman job more. She you know, wanted to look more at user experience, brand innovation, working with the community. And I sort of, having had run, you know, corporate strategy team at Microsoft and been a product manager, had a very complimentary skill set. So by the end of the, the year, she was like, let's just change titles because you're doing the CEO job. I'm doing the chairman job. And I decided to stay on. That was you know, four years ago, Interesting. four and a half years ago. Do you, do you enjoy being a CEO and operator more than being an angel investor? I have friends who were successful founders. They sell their company, they become investors, and then they're trying oh, to- yeah. To be CEO and it doesn't always work out. So yeah. CEO building a company is way more fun and way more interesting and way more challenging than investing in companies. You know, I think I've flirted over the years a couple of times with becoming a full-time VC or raising my own fund. But once you're kind of get a taste of what it's like in the arena, it's sort of hard, I think, to to give that up as long as you think you have, you know, the stamina and the the skills to kind of continue to contribute and grow the company. So this is my fourth startup that I sort of built and operated after a 10-year career at Microsoft, and I'm pretty addicted to it. I like angel investing because I love to give entrepreneurs, share the lessons and insights that I picked up from my own successes and failures over the last decade. But I think I'd have a hard time becoming a full-time VC, at least at this stage of my career. I think, you know, maybe after we take sort of class past the promised land, IPO, we build some new businesses out. At some point, maybe I'll decide that I want to just be more of an armchair coach and move to a full-time investing role. But right now I love to angel invest just because of the connection to the entrepreneur, the ability to give them maybe a little bit of helpful advice here and there that can change the trajectory of their company, but prefer to spend most of my time actually building companies on my own. What are your main ways for acquiring customers on both sides of the marketplace, the studios and then the consumers? On the uh, studio side, either they hear about us from other studios and come and sign up on our webpage because you can self-sign up and then we just go put them through sort of a checking and validation process to ensure good quality. On the customer side, again, most of our growth is actually viral word of mouth. And we also have social referral programs. So we have the traditional one where, you know, we give the customer a bounty for, you know, convincing people they know to join the platform like Uber does or whatever. We also have another program where we'll just pay for your friend to come to class with you for free and bringing friends to a workout is a great way to kind of introduce someone to a new form of working out. It's a great way to motivate you to both of you to work out because you kind of have this mutual commitment. And we see a lot of that, like where people, instead of going for a drink with friends, will go to a class with a friend and it's kind of a healthier routine. And so, you know, most of our growth tends to be viral word of mouth or social referral. Of course, we also do traditional performance marketing, social media, social platforms on Google, et cetera, et cetera. But we see those things as sort of on top of a heavily viral, you know, word of mouth growth engine. For the studios, do you do any kind of calling door-to-door marketing, if you will? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if we're launching new geographies, right? So new cities that we weren't previously in or new countries, we grew from four to like 30 countries over the last 18 months or two years. Certainly in those cases, we're heavily, you know, dialing in and, and then doing market visits, setting people on the ground to go. A lot of times you have to go take the class at the studio to meet the owner and tell them about our proposition. Once they get those meetings, the close rate's pretty high. Again, since it doesn't cost anything to join ClassPass for the studio, doesn't cost them to market and start to bring revenue in, doesn't cost them anything in customer support costs. 
it's a good, pretty easy proposition. But yeah, we do a lot of you know, inside sales uh, with the team, you know, calling studio owners, trying to track them down. And then we also do in-person visits. What would you say are the main challenges in your business today? You know, the obvious one du jour is the, you know, running a fitness business during a global pandemic is, is pretty challenging. We were really lucky to have raised a $285 million financing round in December. Sometimes it's, you know, better to be lucky than good. You know, we should have the funds to survive this thing, but it's really been tough on the business. I mean, we've been public about, you know, 95% revenue decline in two weeks, you know, as the pandemic just shut down all this, all these places, you know, and we had to go through a layoff, you know, to make sure that we could survive on our balance sheet to the other side of this thing, which is really terrible because we had such great people, you know, and we were doing so well. So the pandemic is definitely the biggest challenge facing the industry. And for us, the biggest risk is just can our partners survive and get to the other side of it? We were lucky to have raised capital, but a lot of our small studios and gym partners, they don't have access to outside financing. And you know, some of them are relying on rent relief from their landlords or governmental support programs. And different countries have better programs than others. So right now, that's probably the greatest challenge to the industry. And in normal times, probably the greatest challenge is keeping people motivated to work out, right? You know, most people, their fitness routines kind of wax and wane, they're really motivated for some time and they fall off the wagon. And that's why we lean heavily into, the, into these social experiences and ways to kind of really keep people motivated and drive those motivation mechanics. Yeah, speaking of pandemic, I've noticed on your site that some of the studios are, are recording online classes and, and offering that in lieu of an in-person visit. How well is that picking up? Are people taking the online classes? Yeah, it's been a really successful program. So yeah, thanks for raising that. Really proud again of the team as the world was sort of shutting down because of COVID. Our engineers and product teams spent probably in 10 to 15 business days, got a live streaming platform built in, in stage so that um, all of our instructors and studio partners and gym partners who were doing in-person classes could start broadcasting and streaming those via Zoom or Instagram live or YouTube live and just use ClassPass as a way to sort of help people find, discover, and monetize those classes. We waived commission on that. So we just said, look, we're not going to make money. We just want our customers to stay active. We want our partners to get some money. So it was one of the initiatives we did for our partners in addition to a donation matching campaign and a couple other things, some government lobbying to try to help the industry stay afloat. And that's been going really well. We have some new innovation kind of coming on that side in the future, you know, in terms of how we're going to package and price video and hopefully make it even bigger. That's good to know. Let's talk about your angel investing career. You've been unusually successful as an angel investor with investments in Pinterest, Square, Wish, Flexport, and, and, and many others. And, and, you know, they say that that early stage angel investing is largely a game of spray and pray. I have a friend, acquaintance, someone you might know, Jill Penchina. You know, he's invested in, in seven unicorns, I believe. He's really honest. Much of it is luck, and he can't really say that it was him. But still, I mean, there are people like you and him who, who just consistently seem to pick winners. It can't all be luck. What's your secret? And, and how do you get deal flow? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say luck is probably at the top of the list in terms of at least my experience and where I've, I've been. And then the other thing about angel investing is success begets success, right? So if you are on the cap table with some great companies, you become known as an investor who's associated with great companies. So founders want you to be on their cap table. Because then when you go to VCs or other investors, you become a positive signal. So your deal flow improves and you get more looks at the best companies. And it's kind of a positive virtuous cycle. I got, you know, again, luck. I mean, how can you not say it's lucky? I mean, three of my first 10 investments were Pinterest, Wish, and Square. 
So I probably got overconfident along with my investment partner, Hank Neal, and, and maybe reverting to the mean a little bit over our subsequent you know, 70 or 100 investments together or on my own. You know, I have a lot of great companies in there. I think after luck, the two things that I have that have most informed my success as an investor that maybe are unique versus others. One is I spent 10 years at Microsoft, which was a great company for learning how to ship software and monetize software. And I started as a product manager. So I got to see how you build and market software products. But then I spent the majority of my career there in corporate strategy. And corporate strategy is you distilled it down to sort of one job. It's analyze the quality investment opportunities for companies in new business areas and to go pursue those. And Microsoft, when I left, I think had 18 businesses driving over a billion dollars of revenue. I mean, just insane. And so I got you know a lot of muscle development in terms of rapidly analyzing a new space, a new category a new business idea, evaluating the potential scale of that, how feasible it was, how ready was the technology and the timing, a lot of just training, kind of analyzing investment opportunities, sitting in that corporate strategy role. Then the second is I've gotten really good at sort of evaluating entrepreneurs. I've, I've myself have been an entrepreneur with some small successes and lots of failures. And I know what it takes to build a successful internet business. Not many people out there can do it and have the, um, uh, not just the kind of the, the skills or the capacity in terms of the technical skills or the business model thinking skills or whatever, but just the hustle and the determination and the grit and the resilience that it takes because everyone fails so much, you know, you fail so much more as an entrepreneur than you succeed, even the most successful ones. And that takes a certain kind of person. And so now having done it myself and having met so many founders over the years, and having seen the Jack Dorseys and the Ben Silvermans build successful businesses and what they've been through, I have now, and myself, I, you know, I kind of can quickly evaluate whether I think somebody has that. And I'm wrong more often than I'm right. But that combined with having interviewed hundreds of engineers for my own companies means that I, I have a decent ability to sort of that, that business analysis background that engineer founders tend not to have with some ability to evaluate technical capability. And I think that is a good skill set that gives me sort of a unique position. So speaking of evaluating entrepreneurs, if you could distill what you do into some kind of litmus test or heuristic, what would it be? Are there questions you ask? Are there red flags you look out for? How do you size up people quickly? People always ask me that. I don't really have a clean framework, either in how I evaluate people or in how I invest in terms of categories. A lot of investors are thesis driven or whatever, every time I think I have the world modeled, I find some exception to, to my model and have to re remodel the world. So I've stopped doing that. And I just have a really open mind, try to have as open a mind as I can, you know, try to deprogram all the biases that have you know been instilled in by society or my experiences and, and try to meet every entrepreneur with an open mind and listen to, you know, what is their secret about the opportunity that they're trying to push forth and evaluate how good I think it is. So I don't really have a formula. I just try to meet interesting folks who are really determined and passionate about their idea. And I, I do try to sense like the, why are you doing this? And really assess if it's work or if it's actually fun that happens to be work. But, you know, I don't have a great formula distillation. And if I did, I probably would reveal it anyway. Fair enough. Who are two entrepreneurs or CEOs from the e-commerce age you admire most? And briefly tell us why. The ones that I like, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I'm like the only guy in tech actually from there. I grew up in a town called Los Altos. And Became good family friends with the founder of Adobe System, John Warnock. And he's one of them for sure, because today in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of 
pomp and circumstance, celebrity founder kind of stuff, you know, sizzle over substance. Warnock and Geschke, the founders of Adobe, were 100% the opposite. They just literally invented math and algorithms that designers could then apply to building these great applications and products and quietly built this mega, mega software company. You know, they're not very well known and they don't care. They just were really interested in building an awesome company with great values, great culture and excellent products. So I try to model my own style off of them a bit more than you know others who may be more outward facing. And the second one, Bill Gates, I went to work at Microsoft out of college because what I appreciated about Microsoft was not that just that he was a technical genius, but a business model genius and built some of the best businesses we've had in the history of Western civilization. You know, and then to kind of walk away from that and then go become probably the most impactful philanthropist of our time is pretty special. So I would say those two are the kind of the best examples. I'd say the third would be Elon Musk, who's probably a popular answer these days, also a highly polarizing figure. I had the pleasure of meeting him once, super smart. You know, he does some interesting stuff on Twitter or whatnot, but, you know, nobody can take away, you know, that that guy's working on some of the most interesting things in the world, and most ambitious projects in the world, which, you know, something I admire. Indeed. So what's the one piece of e-commerce advice you'd like to share with, with the audience? Perhaps something you wish someone had told you before you, you took over as CEO of ClassPass. Uh, our audience is mostly mid-sized, small e-commerce entrepreneurs. So what's a relevant piece of advice you'd like to share? I mean, so many great lessons are around being agile and very people-centric. You know, hiring decisions are the most important decisions in a company, especially the earlier, the more important. Those, the people you bring in will determine your success or failure. But I think a unique one that is surprising is to be honest with yourself about what's working and what's not working. Try lots of things, hope for the best, expect the worst, but be honest. So many of us entrepreneurs are dreamers and passionate about our own ideas. The, the plus side is that the resilience can get you through some challenging times, which all, all of us will face. The danger, though, can be to be overcommitted to something and not just sort of honest and talking to customers or getting the data. And saying, oh, okay, that's not the right idea. Let me move on to the next one. So be ruthlessly honest with yourself is probably one of the ones I wish that I had been told before. Thank you, Fritz, for joining our show. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. Thank you again. All the best in getting Thanks for- the promised land that you mentioned, which I believe is an IPO. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jasper.